So, here in First Corinthians 6, we're up against the same old problem that we have, I think, throughout uh, the Corinthian letters of trying to understand the context in which Paul is writing. And we're hearing, as it were, one side of a conversation. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now, concerning what you wrote to me about, and we think, yeah, what did they write to him about? And we don't know exactly. Uh, so we're hearing one side of a conversation. But I think that we can work out a little bit uh, of the background of what was going on here in, uh, in Corinth. He's, of course, writing, addressing a, a number of, of concerns. But he does have a big... Uh, uh, concern with them about sexual immorality and he uses the words pornos and pornea from where we get the word pornography and I know we maybe don't really want to uh, dwell on this kind of thing but I think let's uh, understand the context in which Paul was writing and then we can take out some uh, principles which can apply more widely into our lives. Now in chapter 5 he's talked about uh, this case of uh, this serious immorality and how they should separate from such a person and uh, etc and here in chapter 6 that, that really that theme really seems to, to continue now there was in Corinthian society and in fact in the first century Mediterranean society generally the idea of the symposium and a symposium was largely a gathering of men who had a common interest typically a trade guild or maybe a a religion that they followed and they would have a, a get together and it could be a regular one and somebody would give a talk about a lecture if you like about a theme that was relevant to their professional interest or their religion and there would be plenty of alcohol around and they drank uh, what you might call a toast pretty long toast uh, multiple toasts to their trade guild or to the god who was their patron god or their idol or whatever in a kind of a religious sense, they drunk this, uh, the, these toasts to this, this person, or this god. And there were male and female prostitutes around, and these symposia ended up as sort of orgies. And it's been pointed out that there's a lot of similarity between the symposia, which they would have been used to, and the breaking of bread. It was a group of people with a common uh, interest, having a lecture about something or other, and there was a drinking of, of wine in memory of Jesus. But it all got out of hand, and it seemed that they turned those breaking of bread meetings into just a, a drunken orgy. And this is not the only place in the New Testament where you get this implication that this is what was going on. You have in the letters of Jesus in Revelation the criticism of Jezebel, uh, a woman uh, he gives that code name to, uh, a female uh, teacher who was teaching his servants to commit fornication, and the implication would seem to be she was doing that within the ecclesia. So a pretty bad situation. And yet Paul is so positive about the whole thing, or he tries to be, and he says that they ought to, <clears throat> in chapter 6, he says they ought to judge, uh, judge rightly about this kind of thing, that this is absolutely not, uh, not on. And this is why he says in chapter 5, verse 11, I have written unto you already not to keep company, not even to eat, and he means in a religious sense, breaking of bread, uh, with one who is called a brother, who is a fornicator, this pornos, male prostitute, 
This is similar to what Jezebel was doing from a female point of view, and they had a, a male who was doing this in, in Corinth. And he said, look, you should judge rightly. And he says in chapter 6, uh, verse 2, If the world is going to be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And he, he's implying there that they are going to be saved, that they are all going to be in the kingdom. And he uh, goes on to, to say... Um, verse 3, don't you know that we shall judge angels? Now forgetting for one moment what expositionally that might refer to he's implying that those in Corinth to whom he was writing are going to be in the kingdom and this is in my in my context that this is the point he's saying look you've got a wonderful future ahead of you that you're going to judge in the kingdom um, that the world is going to be judged by you or ruled by you ten cities, five cities, two cities, etc. Look, you ought to be able, therefore, to sort out these kind of problems. You don't need to go to law, verse 6, before the unbelievers, uh, because you should have the wisdom to deal with these kind of issues in, in this life, if you are going to be the future rulers. Now, he's assuming that his readership are all going to be in the kingdom. And that is what I want to emphasize. And he does this uh, actually all through his letters, and he's dealing with very spiritually immature people and some pretty awful situations. Um, he talks uh, in, in verse 11 about such were some of you, but you are washed. He's alluding surely to baptism. You are sanctified, you are justified, you are counted right in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You've got Jesus, Spirit, and God, the name, and washing. This is definitely an allusion to being baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and being justified, being counted right. And so he will not bring himself to actually say that these incredibly immature believers in Corinth were not going to be in the kingdom, that he saw a huge significance in the fact they had been baptized and that from God's point of view they were counted right. That before his judgment, which is the only judgment worth bothering with, they are counted right. And he does the same, for example, when he writes to the Thessalonians and he, he says that uh, you are all children of light. He implies in 1 Thessalonians 4 that, you know, you're all going to be saved. We shall, who are alive and remain, shall be snatched away in the clouds, and we shall forever be with the Lord. So, Paul, with all his spiritual maturity, must have found it really hard to put up with these people who were so immature. And yet, he does so because he sees the huge significance in the fact that they are in Christ. And so he assumes, that, and he writes as if, they will be saved. Now, believe me, this is a principle which is a, a ladder by which we can reach the stars, as it were. That if you are not going to be in the business of condemning your brother or sister, and you assume that all those within 
the body, those baptized into Christ, are going to be in the kingdom and are going to be saved, this totally elevates your experience, I think, of church life. And so many people leave our faith and, and leave the body of Jesus, or, or let's say, the, not the body of Jesus, I, I didn't mean that, I mean like the, the visible church, let's put it that way. They, they clear off because they're offended and upset by the behavior of others whom they consider to be absolutely uh, wrong in, in their way of life, their belief, etc. And we're not saying that that way of life or belief is, is right. But what I'm saying is that if someone is baptized into Christ, we are to assume that they will be in God's kingdom. And I think Paul in his whole writing to the Corinthians time and again makes this point. And we made the point the other day when we looked at chapter 5, when he talks about how they're breaking bread in verse 8. And he says, look, let us keep the feast, the breaking of bread, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he says in verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lamp, lump, as you are unleavened. Now, were they leavened or unleavened? Well, clearly they had leaven. He tells them they've got to get rid of it. Malice and wickedness. But he says, you must act as you are unleavened. And that is the phrase to underline. By status, you are without sin, because you are justified and counted right, uh, in Christ, and you need to live that out in status. And you notice with all the terrible weakness there, there was there in Corinth, he still encourages them to break bread. Uh, that's, uh, I think, significant. And he tells them that they are seen as unleavened, and that is how they should try to be. In fact, you see it in, in every chapter, in the whole of the Corinthian correspondence, it seems to me. There's something somewhere where Paul uh, lets go that, uh, that uh, well, he, he, he shows us that he, he really does assume that they are going to be saved. He says in 2 Corinthians, I fear that as Eve uh, was beguiled by the serpent, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, he's likening them to the innocent Eve in Eden, and they, they really weren't anything of the sort in, in reality, but that's how he saw them. And so, you look at those people within the Brotherhood who are so discouraging for you, that make you so angry, that uh, make you feel you want to give up and leave, you know, those very people, and you know, they may not be in the Kingdom in the end, but that's not our judgment call. Uh, those very people are our tests as to whether we really believe that by baptism into Christ we really are counted as justified and sanctified in him. And that in fact strengthens your own faith because you too are a sinner. And we, therefore, if we can believe that about others, we end up believing it about ourselves. That, wow, I really will be saved. And so... He has a lot to say here about self-control and about the incorrect behavior that was going on sexually. And statistically, it's interesting that here in chapters 6 and 7, where he's talking so much about sexual matters and personal control, he uses the phrase, the Lord, about Jesus statistically far more often than he does anywhere else in his writing. 
So in appealing for brethren and sisters, that's you and me, to be self-controlled and to, to really cut into the flesh and say, no, nah, I will not do that, even if the others do it, I shall not, the motivation for that is because Jesus is Lord. And if I were to say to you, you believe Jesus is Lord? Is he the Lord Jesus? Sure, hands would go up, yes, absolutely. But if Jesus is Lord, Master, this means that we are to be his, and not to do what we want. And in chapter 6 here, verse 20, you are bought with a price. The idea of buying there is to buy in a market. And it's the idea of buying a slave. So a slave had absolutely no uh, <clears throat> personal, in that sense, uh, election to just get up in the morning and do what they wanted to do. They were slaves, and that's the whole thing. And the price that was paid is, of course, the blood of the Lord Jesus that we're here to remember. And so we were purchased out of one slave owner into the ownership of another. That's the point of Romans 6. That's what happens at baptism. And so we are to live appropriately, that as the others that we struggle with are also baptized and, and saved and justified and sanctified, that is also true of us personally. And he deals with uh, some of the false reasoning that was being, <clears throat> being put up. And he, I think he's probably uh, quoting from some of uh, what they were saying in verse 15 um, sorry verse 13 meats for the belly and the belly for meats that's what they were saying that just as a person needs to eat so sexually well you need to fulfill yourself it's just a basic uh, animal uh, need as strong as eating food and he says, no, God shall destroy both it and them. The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. <clears throat> so then, we may think this is all a bit uh, beyond us, that we are not in this particular situation, that we may not be faced with acute sexual temptation. We don't go to an ecclesia where there's uh, prostitutes hanging around, uh, and everyone gets drunk, and etc. But the principle that we can take out of it is that we are not to justify any form of failure, be it dashing off an angry email, be it a, a, a moment of anger with uh, somebody or something, we are not to justify that by saying, yeah, well, I'm just human. And we're motivated, I think, in that by the fact that Jesus had our nature. And whatever we say about human nature, we say about the Lord. And it's no good saying, well, I, you know, you almost are inevitable sinners that we have to sin because I'm human. Well, Jesus was human, and this is the whole point of the wonder of it all, that he was human, but he did not sin. And he demonstrated once and for all that it's no good saying, well, just as I'm hungry and I have to eat, so therefore I have to sin. And that's a principle that we can take, that every single sin we commit is in that sense avoidable. If we don't believe that, then I don't really see how we can ever repent, really, uh, if we have this sort of tape playing in our mind all the time that's saying, but I'm only human. Yes, we are human, but so was Jesus. When he says in verse 13, the body is not for fornication, uh, I think the next uh, 
phrases, phrases are poorly translated. Most Bibles read, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. But the, the word for there is an interpretation that's not translating anything. Um, the idea is, and Paul's bluntness is maybe not picked up in a lot of translations, uh, the body is, not for fornication, but the Lord, and the Lord, the body. There's a, a very intense connection between Jesus and us, because we are baptized into his body. And you've got that in, in chapter 12. Uh, verse 13, where Paul makes the point that by one spirit you are baptized into one body. That is the body of Jesus. And the idea of the spirit and the body, etc., recurs here in chapter 6. And so <clears throat> the fact that we've been baptized into the body of Jesus means that he is us and we are him. And what you do with your body is therefore a statement about him, because you are his representative 24-7 in this world. And so he says, verse 15, Don't you know that your bodies are the members of Christ? We are, he's going to go on to develop this in chapter 12, that we are each different parts of his body, that we are him. And without us, he, in that sense, does not exist on this earth. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot, a prostitute? God forbid. Don't you know that he which is joined to a harlot, a prostitute, is one body? For two shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And I think this again is an allusion to, to baptism, that the joining to the Lord is what happened in baptism. As I say... The uh, ideas are very similar in, in chapter 12, verse 13, that we are baptized into one body by one spirit, or in one spirit. Body, spirit, baptism, that these are the ideas that you've got here. He doesn't use the word baptism, but he talks in verse 11 about being washed in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is you know, clearly the same thing. So then, if you, at the breaking of bread, as, they were, as I'm suggesting was going on in Corinth, if you sleep with a prostitute, or not sleep so much, but you know what I'm saying, you're saying that that's what Jesus is doing. Now, we may say, well, yeah, this is way out of my experience. I've never been to, uh, never been to a church like that. Um, and yet the, the principle is relevant, very relevant. Because in all our actions, we are him. Let's take driving, you know? In the same way as he says here, look, if, if you sleep with a prostitute, do you think that that's, uh, you know, is that what Jesus would do? You're joining the body of Jesus with a prostitute in one body and one spirit. In your driving, you are Jesus. And do you really think that if cutting someone up and uh, horning somebody and all the rest of it, is that what Jesus would do? Because, as has truly been said, he has no other hands or legs or feet or face in this world apart from you and I. Now let's come to verse 18 and 19, flee fornication. And Sure, that's an allusion to Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife. In other words, just get out of the, uh, just get out of the, uh, the context where temptation might occur. 
Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. That's what most Bibles say. Now, if that's how we're going to read it, I think we have some problems. Because how can you sin against your own body? You sin against persons and against God. The body, physically, I mean, this is just a sack full of water and complex chemicals and calcium and bone, you know, bones and, and all that. How can you sin against your own body? Now, that got me thinking about this, and I, I look at the Greek for against, and it's this word eis, E-I-S, and this is not usually translated against. It's hundreds of times in the New Testament, and it's always got the idea, generally, of in or within. You get baptized in water, in, in the water. Um, not against the water and when we read about sinning against it's a different construction a diff different, different words are used so let's bear that in mind and also the body ok Paul is talking about how we use the physical body but he uses the, the body very often in Corinthians and he's generally talking about the body of Christ and that is uh, also in view I think here in chapter 6 so he says that um, <clears throat> fornication, porneia, this what I would call systemic uh, immorality, the, the conscious use of uh, prostitutes there, of the breaking of bread, you're, if you do that, he says you're sinning in the body, in, your, in the body which is yours. Um, that is the body of Christ. So he's trying to get them to quit this kind of behavior by arguing, not simply by the way, saying it's wrong and therefore don't do it, period, dot com, end. He's given them a reason, lots of reasons, and one of them is that you are part of the body of Christ. And he seems to say that this fornication was a specific type of sin which uh, is not done outside of the body of Christ, but it's actually within the body. <clears throat> and I think what he's saying there is that uh, because you, as in you as a body, as a person, your physical, literal body, is a representative of Jesus. If you use those prostitutes, that pornos, which he's talked about in chapter 5, there in the breaking of bread, you are really sinning within the body of Jesus, which is your body. His body is yours. And when he goes on in 19, he therefore says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, your there is you plural, and that is significant. Don't you plural know that your plural body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, plural. Then he's talking about individual use of the body, just literally. I would have thought it would have been you singular, but it's plural. And I think he's saying that in the same way as the Holy Spirit dwelt within the tabernacle and the temple for the angel of the presence, etc., the Shekinah glory earlier, so now in this dispensation the Holy Spirit dwells within the church as in the body of believers. You, verse 20, you as a community have been bought, have been redeemed. Because salvation is in a body. It's in a community. 
It's not just of individuals. And we individually experience that salvation insofar as we are within the body. And so he, he says that um, the sin that we commit in this way is actually uh, affecting Jesus, who is intimately connected with our body, and also uh, the, the body of believers. And that is particularly true of sexual sin. It might appear that it's, uh, it's between two persons, but in my experience it really, if ever, is that. Let's take a typical case. Uh, a brother and sister who are both married in an ecclesia uh, commit uh, adultery with each other. Well, what about the spouses? What about their, their wives? What about the kids? And because human beings simply can't seem to leave judgment alone, you always get division within churches over this. He should be disfellowshipped. No, he shouldn't. She led him on. She should be disfellowshipped. No, she shouldn't. You don't know what her husband's like. He, I'm pretty sure he beats her up. Poor woman. Goodness, she found a bit of love. Well, it was wrong, but, you know, uh, let's cut her a bit of slack. No, no, no. She's nothing more than a prostitute. Oh, well, you can't disfellowship him. You know, his kids are baptizing in the meeting, and he's got little grandkids in the Sunday school. Yeah, all this kind of stuff. And this is what destroys churches. And so it's, it's not just that sexual sin is between two persons at one point in time. It tends to be not like that. It is a sin, in that sense, within the body. That affects the, the body in a way that I think other sin typically doesn't. So then... <clears throat> The principle out of all this is that we are in the body of Jesus. And we come back to what I said in verse 13, that the body is the Lord, and the Lord is the body. That we are him and he is us. It's like he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He doesn't say, I am the trunk and you are, or I'm the stem and you're the branches. I am the vine and you are the branches. In other words, without you, I, in that sense, don't exist. This is how intimately connected he is with us. So then, I think that um, what, he, what he's saying is that our behavior affects others. And Therefore, because we are part of the body of Christ, we should be him to others. And that precludes, of course, sexual immorality. But, as I say, this is just this uh, sexual uh, context here is just a context. The lesson that we're to take from this is that we are Jesus in this world, and all our brothers and sisters are his body. And whether you write your letter of resignation or whether you get chucked out of the church or whatever it might be, you are still part of that body. And they are still part of you. And that's how it is. Um, <clears throat> and sin is against the body. And whether or not we think that it's okay or, or justifiable is not quite the point even if we think the action is, is justifiable. 
that is not the point. And that this is what he said in chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, I know nothing against myself, but I'm not thereby justified. It's okay in my conscience is not the issue. And he's going to develop this in talking about meat offered to idols, etc. That in the end, we have a collective responsibility. That is not simply that we picked up a set of true doctrine, got baptized, and now can uh, sit back, relax, enjoy the flight to God's kingdom. We are Christ in this world, and we are his body. And we are to act appropriately to each other, bearing in mind that through it all, through all these horrible things that he's spoken about, he considered them, even Corinth, to be washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and to have sure hope of judging angels, whatever that means, uh, and judging, in fact, the whole world. And he's saying that if that really is our hope personally, and if that is the hope that we also have for each other, we will act appropriately.